All right, so the message today is we are family. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, looking at verses 31 through 35. And, you know, it was an awesome time this week. Got to spend time with my immediate family and some extended family as well. But it was a little different uh, for Brandy and me and having a a married daughter now and she and her husband coming to visit and kind of that dynamic. And then another daughter who's in college and her visiting and my two kids that are still at home. And so just kind of got me thinking a lot about family this week. And as I was spending a lot of time with them, I just, I I desired, it's like, well, let me do a, a study on the family. And let's see about that. And so what I felt led to was here in Mark chapter 3. And so that's what we're going to look at today in this message. Again, I've entitled We Are Family. And I want to begin um, our study together by defining the word family. Family is defined as a basic social unit consisting of parents and their children, considered as a group, whether dwelling together or not, the traditional family. And another definition is any group of persons closely related by blood, such as parents, children, uncles, aunts, and cousins. And so in addition to these definitions of the family, though, we often hear other groups, such as coworkers, right? Like if you live in a, if, if you work together with people that you're really close to and you're working strongly together, then they're like a family to you. I know that's how Brandy and I feel about when we're working, you know, there at Midland Classical and our coworkers there, it is, it's a family there. Um, or also you hear about this with sports teams. Right, we're getting, uh, we're getting close to playoff time and sports, and we talk about family as far as sports teams go and doing things together. Oftentimes, military units are referred to as families. There's that brotherhood of soldiers together. Now, we are also at the same time aware that our nation is in the midst of a culture war over what constitutes a family. We've been dealing with this for years now as there's all kinds of different definitions about the family. Long-held ideas regarding the family are being aggressively challenged by those whose agenda is in conflict with traditional values. And so with all of this, in light of these facts, it's helpful for us as Christians to come back to the scriptures and to re-examine our beliefs about the family in light of what the word of God has to say. Because it's interesting, sometimes we can take a word like family and we use it so often that if someone were to ask us, what do you mean by family? We're like, well, I don't know what I mean by family. See, we need to think about it. It's very important for us. Because what the Bible has to say about family is very, very interesting. And it may be something that you're not expecting. So it's this subject that we're going to examine today as we study the last five verses of Mark chapter 3. So there in Mark chapter 3, verses 31 through 35, would you please follow along as I read the passage? It says, then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And so we're going to spend our time this morning focusing on three sections. We're going to see family visit, family announced, and family redefined. And so let's move into our first section. That's family visit. We're going to find this in verse 31 of Mark chapter 3. And I want to begin by this idea of surprise family visits. So let those three words sit in your mind. Surprise family visits. So much can be said (laughs) about surprise family visits. It's likely that we've all experienced good surprise visits. And it's likely that we've experienced bad surprise visits from family. Now, if you're sitting here today and you say, you know what, I just, I just don't think that anyone in my family is, is weird or unusual or the, or the black sheep, well, then you're probably that person. <laughs> uh, that's probably how it works out. 
But we all know about surprise visits. The one that comes to my mind, kind of one of my favorite memories of a surprise family visit as I was a freshman in college at A&M Galveston, majoring in marine biology. And I decided I was gonna come home and surprise my parents. And so it was a Friday night. My parents were teaching school at that time and my mom was working the ticket booth at the football game. And so I came and then went, found out which booth she was in and went to go buy a ticket. And she was excited. And it was, it was just a really cool moment that first time that I had been out to come home and surprise my mom. It, it, was, it, was, a, it was a fun time. It was a, an awesome memory. Well, likewise, as we get into this passage this morning, we're going to see that Jesus' family is actually paying him a surprise family visit. But unlike my visit during that first semester of college, Jesus' family wasn't just coming home to, to see or wasn't coming to see him just because they miss him. Something else was going on. There was a different agenda involved. So to see what I mean, will you look there in Mark chapter 3, and when you go back a couple of verses to verses 20 and 21, because uh, it's important for us to understand, a, a good biblical, um, when we're studying the Bible, there's a, there's a saying that I want you guys to remember, to memorize, context is king. Context is king. What I mean by that is when we study a, a, a passage of scripture, we need to see what's the context, what's going on, what's happening. That really will give us greater understanding. So here's the context, and we're going to allow it to rule. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says, Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So that's the context. So here's what's going on. Jesus has this large following. People are, are kind of going around and they're listening to him. But his own people there in verse 21 of Mark chapter 3 speaks about his family. So his own people speaks of his family, his relatives. So notice what they're going to do. They're going to lay hold of him. They're going to grab Jesus because they think he's crazy because here's Jesus thinking he's the Messiah. And so they're going to go grab him and take him home. That's the context. Now, you and I at times, right, we may have difficult family members. We may be the difficult family member. But hopefully they don't often come by to take hold of us because they think we're crazy. That's exactly what's happening here. And this is important for us to understand because sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, we can kind of have this, this sanitized version of it and think somehow the biblical characters are not real humans, that they're somehow different from you and I, but they're just people like us. And so you have a family member who is like acting like he's the promised Messiah and you just really, how can this be? Right? That, that's, that's what we have here. That's what's happening. So as we examine the context, these verses tell us that the Lord Jesus' family was on their way from Nazareth to Capernaum to pay him a surprise visit. But unfortunately, Jesus' family was convinced that Jesus was out of his mind. They think he's crazy. They think he's, he's you know, deranged or they think he's got delusions of grandeur, whatever the case may be. And so they're determined to physically restrain him and take him back to Nazareth. They want to take hold of him. Now, if that doesn't hit you this morning, then it should, because that's radical. To go and to take the, the man who's, who's truly man and truly God, the second person of the Trinity in human flesh, and to say, you know what, I'm just going to grab him. But it's not unusual. Isn't that what Jesus, I'm sorry, isn't that what Peter did to Jesus? You guys remember the story? Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Peter puts his arm around Jesus and says, it's not going to happen to you. Your boy Pete's here. Right? It's going to be fine. 
So, so that's what we have here. Now, as we continue our study back in verse 31, we see that Jesus' family members have arrived in Capernaum. So verse 31, notice, then his brothers and his mother came. Now, some ancient manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark record that Jesus' sister came, sisters came on this surprise visit as well. Now, we don't know the name of Jesus' sisters, but we do know the name of Jesus' mother, of course, Mary, and we know the names of Jesus' brothers. So let me give you a couple of cross-references. You can look them up on your own if you like. Matthew 13, 55, and Mark chapter 6, verse 3, tell us four of these brothers and their names. So these are the brothers of Jesus. Now, if we want to be technically correct, they're half-brothers, right? Same mom, different dad. You'll get that later. All right, so there's James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Those are the four brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. It's also interesting to note that there are nine New Testament verses that explicitly refer to the fact that the Lord Jesus had brothers. Now, this is very important. Why am I kind of digging down into this? Because it shows us that the Roman Catholic dogma of the perpetual virginity of Mary is a false doctrine that is not supported by the Bible. It's a false doctrine. Scripture makes it clear that after the birth of Jesus, Joseph and Mary had normal marital relationship and they had at least four sons and an unknown number of daughters. Again, this is vital for for you and for me. I would be failing you as a pastor if I didn't encourage you to make sure that the things you believe are based on what the scriptures teach. If you and I begin to just, you know, we just start believing stuff that has no scriptural support, then what happens is there's no limit to what we might believe. So so I believe that Mary and Joseph had normal marital relations, that she was not a perpetual virgin, as that false doctrine says, because the Bible says that Jesus had brothers and sisters. And so what happens, then it puts everything back into context, that Mary was unique in human history. No one else has had the Messiah except Mary, and yet at the same time, she was a person. She was a sinner like you and me. She was a person in need of a savior. And so it's very important for us to to have this, to be people who say, I'm gonna believe what the scripture says. And if I'm believing something that I've got from wherever and I can't support it from the Bible, well, I'm gonna dump that belief and believe the Bible. Because that's what I'm gonna keep doing. That's how I'm gonna teach from this church. Because if we stray from that and we just say, well, I'm gonna just start believing whatever I wanna believe because I feel like it, there's no end to that. There's no limit to that. So continuing on, it's important that we remind ourselves that at the time of this surprise visit in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' brothers had not yet placed their faith in him. Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. So with this in mind, would you turn to John chapter 7? So we're going to turn to John chapter 7, looking at verses 1 through 5. I'm seeking to prove the point that during Jesus' earthly ministry, his brothers that he grew up with didn't believe in him. Now, if we're honest, it's, it's not too hard to believe, right? Imagine you grow up with Jesus as your older brother. And the thing you hear every day is, why can't you be more like Jesus? <laughs> Just over and over and over again, you're probably going to have a negative view about him. Jesus never gets in trouble, right? Never, never gets a detention at school, never shirks his chores like you do. All of those things would lead to frustration. So John chapter seven, let's look at verses one through five. 
It says, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee. Remember, Galilee is, is northern Israel. It's where he did most of his ministry. It says, for he did not want to walk in Judea, that's southern Israel, because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the feast of tabernacles, sorry, the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand, and his brothers, okay, so these are his half-brothers that we've read about, his brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Now, as we're reading this, you've experienced this like when you're texting or you're emailing. You don't have tone of voice. Right, And so someone can text you something and you don't realize, what's, what's the tone here? Are they being sarcastic? Are they not? We know from the context that these disciples are being sarcastic. I'm sorry, not the disciples, Jesus' brothers. And, I, and we're going to see that in verse 5. Okay, so let me read that again, kind of with a sarcastic tone. Hey, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret why himself uh, he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, go show yourself to the world. And so here's how I know, verse five, for even his brothers did not believe in him. So they're basically saying, what are you doing hanging out in northern Israel? Prophets need to go down to Judea. Hey, go show them. If you're this Messiah, quote unquote, then why don't you go ahead and go down there and show everybody what's up? They don't believe him, okay? Now, as we think about this, and, and think about it for, from Jesus' standpoint for just a minute. Think about how painful it would have been to grow up with these brothers who you love, who you're going to go to the cross for, who, and here's about to blow your mind, brothers whom you created. <laughs> I don't know how all that works, but it says that all things were made through him and by him and for him. So there's some wild stuff going on there. That, and, and your brothers don't believe in you, and they're mocking you, and these kind of things. Think about how much that would hurt. You've been hurt by family members. Right, you know what it's like when you love a family member and they reject you? You understand that? So think about how that would have felt for Jesus. Now, uh, thankfully, this story has a happy ending. We know from the rest of the New Testament that Jesus' brothers did not remain in their unbelief. Sometime after the resurrection, at least two of Jesus' brothers placed their faith in him. Now, I, I, I would believe that all of them did, but we, we know for sure about two of them. And so, in fact, Jesus' brother James would become the leader of the early church there in Jerusalem, and he would write the book of James. So when you, next time you read the book of James, realize that's written by one of the half-brothers of Jesus. And then also, Jesus' brother Judas would go on to write the book of Jude. So next time you read the book of Jude, realize it's written by a half-brother of Jesus. And so the exhortation for you and for me right now is to continue praying for and witnessing to our unbelieving family members. Just keep doing it right? Just keep doing it. Your witness is not greater than Jesus's. <laughs> and Jesus, as he witnessed to his family members, it wasn't till a later date that they became believers. It wasn't until he rose from the dead. So please don't quit on praying for and witnessing to, sharing and loving your unbelieving family members. Now, please turn back to Mark chapter 3. As you're turning there, it must be admitted that we can't be sure of what Mary thought of Jesus' ministry as she and her sons came to take hold of Jesus. Because think about it, all that Mary experienced, I mean, she experienced some wild things, right? Angel coming to her, telling her she's gonna give birth to the Messiah. She witnessed, you know, the angels there at Jesus' birth. She witnessed, you know, the wise men when they came. She witnessed all those things. But think about that, that was 30 years ago, right? A lot can happen in your heart in 30 years. A lot of, you think about you, you may have experienced amazing things God did in your heart, God did in your life, miraculous things 
10, 20, 30 years ago, and you're going through some present difficulty, and that seems like a lifetime ago. So Mary here, we don't know exactly what she's thinking as she and, and her sons came to take hold of Jesus. Maybe Mary was a passive participant in the expedition. Maybe she was just going because her boys were going. Or maybe she actively wanted to stop Jesus because she feared for his safety. Right? Maybe she's worried about, you know, she knows that there's opposition to Jesus and she just wants to keep her boy safe. And so who knows? Any of those things may have been a part of it. Either way, she and her children, she and her sons, were clearly in the wrong as they sought to disrupt Jesus' public ministry. This is an important point, and we're going to hammer it out a little bit later. But please understand, if your family members are seeking to take you away from what God has clearly called you to do, your family members are wrong. That's very important, right? There's, there's, a, there's actually... On the, you know, obviously we have in our culture the kind of the disruption of the family on the one end, but actually on the other side is the idolatry of family. The idea that whatever family says goes. It's just not true. The fact of the matter is our family should help support us as we walk with Christ, not try to take us away from that. And so here as Jesus seeks to do the Father's will, his family's in the wrong by trying to take him away from that. All right, let's continue on in verse 31. Notice, then his brothers and his mother came standing outside. Okay, so in context, Jesus is in the house of Peter and Andrew, right? Jesus didn't have a house of his own. Um, he's, you know, the, the son of man has nowhere to lay his head, so he was, he's crashing on Peter's couch. And, and so because of the great multitude that was in the house that was surrounding Jesus, Jesus' family is unable to get to him. Okay, so let the movie play in your mind. Jesus is inside this house. He's, he's teaching people. There's multitudes gathered. They're kind of outside the door, maybe outside the windows, looking in. And so Jesus' family comes, and they can't get into him. So notice what we see next in verse 31. So they sent to him, calling him. So Jesus' family sends a message to Jesus that they're waiting outside. Now, just stop right there for a minute and think about how you, I'm sorry, not you, Think about how the family would have expected Jesus to respond. They most likely would expect in that culture for Jesus to drop everything, right, to go out through, the, excuse himself from the crowd and go talk to his family. That's what they would have expected. However, Jesus responds to this message from his family in an extraordinary and quite unexpected way. And we're going to explore that response in our last section. But for now, let's move on to our second section. We move from family visit to our second section, family announced in verse 32. Verse 32, and a multitude was sitting around him. Okay. So we have some more context. Jesus is there and this large group of individuals packed in the house, sitting around Jesus as he shares with them. Now, from what we'll see in verses 34 through 35, it's likely that this multitude gathered in the house included, both the, included the 12 disciples that Jesus had chosen, as well as many others who considered themselves followers of Jesus. So it's in the midst of this meeting that the messengers from Jesus' family make their way through the crowd to the Lord. Okay, so keep in mind, Jesus' family is waiting outside, okay, Mary and brothers and maybe sisters, and so this is kind of like their intervention, right? They're having an intervention. They want to kind of, hey, just come on, Jesus, come back home, it'll be all right, you'll get a good nap and everything will be set right. We can kind of let go of this whole Messiah thing. 
So they send messengers to work their way through the crowd to speak to Jesus. And so we read, here's what the messenger said. And they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Another way to phrase it is like, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside and they really want to talk to you. That's my, how we might phrase it in our way. Now, at this point, we would probably expect Jesus to drop everything, go out and greet his family. That seems like the right thing to do. Right? It seems like, well, man, Jesus needs to kind of do a whole honor your mother and father thing right now. You got to drop everything and go out. But remember that Jesus is the master of the unexpected. And so we're going to see this quite clearly as we move from family announced to our final section, family redefined in verses 33 through 35. So verse 33, but he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brothers? Now that's radical. It's a radical thing to say. And not only does Jesus, the Lord Jesus fail to go outside and greet his family, he asks the multitude around him a perplexing question. So he turns it on, he goes Socratic on them, right? He asks his, his multitude a question. And so what were these disciples gathered around Jesus in the house thinking at this moment? Has Jesus lost his mind? <laughs> Can't he remember who his mothers and brothers are? It seems quite certain that those sitting around Jesus must have been confused by his question, confused by his behavior. Now, let's seek to make sense of Jesus' question. And there's a couple of lines of reasoning that we should consider. First of all, maybe Jesus refused to go out and meet his family because he knew that they would seek to physically restrain him and drag him back to Nazareth. Could you imagine how awkward that's going to be? Could you imagine if Jesus goes outside the house And you know, like there's two brothers waiting on each side of the door for Jesus to come out and they're gonna grab him, put a hood over his head and and drag him away. Now, I mean, I don't have to tell you guys, if Jesus didn't wanna be taken by them, he wouldn't be taken by them, right? So that would have been super awkward if, if that had happened. Or maybe by staying in the house, Jesus was just seeking to avoid a scene, right? He doesn't wanna have kind of a big knockdown drag out with his family out there. However, it seems that the likely scenario is that Jesus was using this circumstance as a teachable moment, that this was a moment for him to teach something. You see, in a culture that valued family above nearly everything else, that's how it is. Read your Bible. Read your Bible and see how they valued family and what family are you from and who was your father and who are your sons. They valued family above nearly everything else. Jesus was about to teach something that would be considered highly subversive something that would be going against kind of their traditions. And so when Jesus answered the question, who is my mother or my brothers, with these words in verse 34, notice, and he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Notice what he leaves out. He doesn't say father, right? Because there's no confusion about Jesus. Jesus only has one father. It's father in heaven. It's the only father, Okay. But he's putting the mother and brothers on this level of the sense that they're fellow human beings, right? And that that they can be in family. This is a wow moment because the Lord Jesus, please hear me, the Lord Jesus is essentially redefining the definition of family. So you and I, we might have a lot of definitions of family that are correct, but if they don't include this definition of family related to fellow believers, it's, it's insufficient, It's very important for us to understand this. 
You see, in Jesus' eyes, family is something more than what you are born into. It's something that you're born again into. So family's not only what you're born into, it's what you're born again into. And as we continue into verse 35, we see the Lord Jesus' explicit, explicit redefinition of the family. Notice, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. So I'd encourage you, you know, if you're someone, you have a digital uh, Bible, then you can highlight it. You know, if you feel comfortable underlining in your Bible, you can do that. Th- that phrase, does the will of God, is incredibly important. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. So here we see that the Lord Jesus is redefining the family, not on genetic terms, not on physical terms, but on spiritual terms. In other words, family in Jesus' eyes is primarily a matter of faith, not of genetics. It's a matter of faith, not of genetics. And I believe Jesus is teaching his disciples that the spiritual family of a believer takes precedence over the natural family of a believer. Spiritual family takes precedence over natural family. This may be shocking to our ears, right? Because we may have been raised to believe that family comes before all else. But Jesus seems to be contradicting that notion. And this is not the only place where Jesus teaches this sort of thing. So to prove my point, would you turn left one book to Matthew? Let's look at Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37. Now, if you, if you read the Bible long enough, you're going to be offended. <laughs> Jesus is going to say some things that offend us uh, because it's not how we were raised or not what, how we believe. But the question is not whether or not we're offended because we will be. The question is, will we submit to Jesus? Will we submit to what the scriptures say? So Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 37, Jesus says again some, some radical things, some subversive things. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, huh, but don't we sing in the holidays about Prince of Peace and all those kind of things? Well, yeah, you, you can be at peace with him if you submit to him, but please understand, Jesus didn't come to bring peace for people who don't submit to him. Anyone who's in rebellion against him, anyone who fails to submit to him, anyone who goes their whole life blaspheming him and refusing his offer of salvation will never have peace, that person will be, go to hell and be separated from him forever. No peace. So yes, you can be at peace with Christ if you will lay down your arms and submit to him. But you can't have things your own way and be at peace with him. It just doesn't work. And then it continues on. Notice, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Now, some, for some of you, that was your Thanksgiving. <laughs> you know, just around the family, and you're fighting for that last drumstick or the last piece of buttermilk pie, and it's a problem. That's not what he's talking about here, though. He's talking about the fact that he doesn't, it's not talking about Jesus. Man, Jesus just loves to stir the pot. You know, there's those people who everything's going nicely and they're just like, hey, how about if I just insert politics into this situation and just explodes? That's not what Jesus is talking about. When he says in verse 35, he's talking about when people believe in me. So a man believes in me, but his father doesn't, I divide those two, right? Or, you know, when a daughter believes and her mother doesn't, I divide those two. And when a daughter-in-law believes and the mother-in-law doesn't, I divide those two. That's what it's talking about. This is not like stirring up discord. This is not causing argumentation. This is either Jesus saying, you're for me or you're against me. 
And so what he's saying is your spiritual family, your obedience to me, your submission to me, Jesus says, is more important than your bloodline. That's what's important. Because that's what lasts forever. That's what's for always. Verse 36, and he says, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. And then he says something even more radical in verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Radical. So a person who says, no, I'm going to keep my relationship with my family member. I'm going to refuse Christ because I don't want to be broken from them. Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. And here's the irony. A person who chooses an unbelieving family member and chooses to remain an unbeliever and doesn't go to Christ, well, basically, you're both going to be separated from him in judgment and you won't be together in hell. So it doesn't make any sense. So he's saying is, but, but here's, the, here's the amazing thing. Here's the plus side of it. When you submit to Christ, you can love your unbelieving family member like you've never loved them before. You, you can pray for them. You can want the best for them. The only way, if, so, so you're here today and you say, I really, really, really want to love my family. The way you can love your family is be as close to Christ as possible. Submit to Christ the most. That's the best way you can love your family. Follow Jesus as closely as possible, and what you'll do is you'll actually love your family well. That's the irony. Now, both here in Matthew 10 and in Mark 3, Jesus seems to be redefining family first and foremost in spiritual terms. Now, notice again, as we turn back to Mark chapter 3, verse 35, notice these words. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Please hear me. This is the most critical part of this verse. The key to understanding what Jesus is saying is found in these words, whoever does the will of God. In a moment, we're going to break down the phrase, whoever does the will of God. But for now, I want to point out the fact that Jesus' family was not doing the will of God at this point in time. Jesus' family was not doing the will of God. How do we know that? Because Jesus is doing the ministry the Father called him to do, and they're trying to stop him. They're trying to take him away from that. They're trying to stop him from doing what God the Father was calling him to do. And because Jesus' family was failing to align themselves with the will of God, the Lord Jesus chose not to respond to their request. If your family member asks you to do something that is against the will of God, do not do that thing. Just don't do it. Obey the Father always. Now we see this same principle played out in a little different circumstance in Acts chapter 4. So would you turn to Acts chapter 4 for just a moment? Acts chapter 4 verses 13 through 20. As you're turning there, it's funny for me because a lot of these verses I read for the first time when I was working summer camp at Camp Champions in Marble Falls. So as I'm going back over these verses, my memory is being taken back there. It's flooding back. And so these are, these are just instrumental verses to help us to see where our loyalties lie. Acts chapter 4, let's look at verses 13 through 20. Now, Peter and John had healed the guy at the gate, beautiful um, you guys are familiar with that passage, and, and so the religious leaders are, are kind of confronting them about this whole deal. So starting in verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that's the religious leaders, they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Okay, so here we're in the book of Acts. Um, Jesus has, Jesus has uh, ascended into heaven. The, the early church is getting started. 
and verse 14, and seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Okay, so here's the problem. Religious leaders, they had crucified Jesus. Now there's this rumor going around that Jesus has been raised from the dead, and his disciples, who used to be cowardly men, are now speaking with authority. A, a guy's being healed. They can't deny the miracle. It happened. And so they're going to have to figure out a way to try to kind of squash this whole Jesus thing. Verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no, one, no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Okay. So they're basically going to say, you guys need to stop talking about Jesus. If you don't, we're going to arrest you, we're going to beat you, we're going to do all these things. But notice how Peter and John respond in verses 19 and 20. I, I, would, I hope you take this to heart, especially in light of the crazy time that in which we're living. And, the, and the, the people wanting us to put our lamp under a basket. Here's what they say. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. <laughs> in other words, if you guys think that we should obey you instead of God, you guys figure that one out on yourselves. Here's what we're going to do. Verse 20. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Awesome. We're just going to tell the truth. And so here's the principle for you and I, to obey God no matter who might persuade you otherwise, whether that person is a government official, whether that person is your employer, whether that person is a family member, you just keep obeying God. You just keep on saying the things that you've seen and heard from God. So obedience to the will of God must be supreme. It is to be the, it's the will of God and not genetics that's to determine our allegiances. So let's move on now and spend some time breaking down the words, whoever does the will of God. So you can go back to, if you would, uh, to Mark chapter three. And so we're gonna see what we find here in verse 35, right? Whoever does the will of God. First of all, please notice that the word whoever tells us that the invitation is open to anyone to become a member of Jesus's family. Don't miss that. Don't miss that word whoever. Anyone who wants to do God's will can become a member of Jesus's family. It's an open invitation. This ought to remind us of what we read in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So enough with the excuses. Enough people say, well, I just really can't believe because of X, Y, and Z and because I'm from this part of the world or because this is what my family. No, 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 no. This is what the Bible says. Whoever, whoever believes can have everlasting life. Second thing to make note of as we continue to explore the words, whoever does the will of God is the word does. The spiritual family that Jesus is referring to is made up of those who actually do the will of God. And they don't do it perfectly, none of us are perfect, but they're actually people who want to do what God tells them to do. They're walking in obedience. And although there's much to explore regarding doing the will of God, it all begins with what Jesus proclaimed in John 6.40. Let me read it for you. John 6.40, this is what Jesus said. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So the first step in doing the will of God is believing in Jesus Christ. That's the first step. That's the first step. Now, I, I kind of think about this way. Um, our family, we talked a lot about this, this week, how we're glad we're not a family who does things like turkey trots. 
You know what a turkey trot is? You know, you get up on Thursday morning and you run a 5K like a crazy person, right? And so that's, we're not that kind of family. But, you know, if you were to be that kind of family, you guys can see this imagery. When you register for the race, you get your number, right? You register for the race, you get your number. Now you're an official runner, but at that point, the race has just begun. You've entered the race, but now it's time to start running. That's how it is for us as believers. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you, you, you're official runner, but you're not going to just stop and stay there at the starting line. You actually have to start running the race of faith. That's what we're called to. So everyone who places their faith in Jesus becomes a member of Jesus' family no matter what natural family they were born into. So if your natural family was awesome and you become a believer, great. If your natural family was a mess and you become a believer, well, great, because you have this new family. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so after that initial doing of the will of God, placing one's faith in Jesus, then it's time to continue doing the will of God as a good family member should. Y'all know what it's like to, to have a family gathering and then the family members are doing their part. They're contributing. And you all know what it's like and the family members are there and, and a, a certain family member doesn't want to be there, doesn't want to be a part of it. You know how detrimental that is. And so since we have a little bit of time left this morning, I want to spend the rest of our time together exploring some of what the New Testament says about the will of God. Because since Jesus said those who do the will of God are his family members, and since the subject of the will of God seems to be so confusing to so many people, it will be helpful for us to spend some time focusing on this subject. So I want to give you some of what the New Testament says about the will of God. So I'm going to have you turn some places. Hopefully you're still with me. So Luke chapter 7, let's look at verses 29 and 30. So the first place we want to look is Luke chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. So we read, And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. This is really important. So we see, um, sometimes we learn things by, uh, by the negative. And so we see here people rejecting the will of God. What was it that they rejected? They rejected John the Baptist. They rejected being baptized by John the Baptist. So the first thing we learn about the will of God here is doing the will of God means receiving those whom God sends. So a person who receives those who God sends. So in other words, when you go and you read the book of Isaiah, and Isaiah says something in there, and you realize, ah, oh, that's, that's for me. God's speaking that word to me, receiving that. That's the will of God for you. That, so receiving those whom God sends. The Pharisees didn't receive John the Baptist because they didn't want to do the will of God. So receive those who God sends to you. Now let's keep on moving. Let's move to Romans now. Now we're going to keep on moving right. So let's move to Romans chapter 12, looking at verses 1 and 2. So here we see some more about the will of God. Now as you're turning there to Romans chapter 12, you know, um, starting in chapter 12 to the end of Romans, Paul gets into his real practical section of the book of Romans. Hey, here's how you walk out this Christian walk. So Romans 12 verses 1 and 2, he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So here we see in these verses, part of the will of God is offering ourselves as living sacrifices. Right? Is that, that daily, Jesus told me, I'm to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him. 
that I'm to be at his disposal, that I'm to be his servant, um, that I'm to, to, to be that living sacrifice. And then another part there in verse two is the will of God is not being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by taking the word of God and allowing it to change my thinking, okay? And then what happens as I walk that out, as you and I walk out what the word of God says, we prove the reality of that and we prove to others that this is the will of God that the will of God is good. All right, let's move on now to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter six, so keep on going right. We're looking at Ephesians chapter six, verses five through eight, more on the will of God. Now, as you're turning there, you know, it's important for us to understand we often reject these clear teachings on the will of God because we just wanna say, well, what's the will of my, uh, God for my life today? And what we mean by that is, does God want me to go here or go there? And we're kind of like this microcosm view. But here's, here's what I want to offer to you. If you and I will just obey the will of God, kind of the, the big picture will of God that we find in the scriptures, God will guide in those, those smaller things. But if you and I fixate on these small decisions instead of doing the big time will of God, the overview will of God, then what's going to happen is, is we're kind of putting the cart before the horse. So for you and I, let's just go to do what the, the will of God says here and then trust that he'll lead us as we're going. As, as Abraham's servant said in the book of Genesis, and being on the way, God led me. Just be on the way and God will lead you. Ephesians 6, verses five through eight, says, bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling and sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that for whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Okay, so the big idea from these verses is the will of God is to be done with the heart, done from the heart, not as a hypocritical show. It's not like, well, I'm going to do the will of God because people are looking, but as soon as people aren't looking, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, right? You've, if, you've, if you've ever been a boss, you've had employees that were like that, right? When you're out of the office, they're not doing anything, but you get in the office and they're like, oh yeah, just typing away, boss, just doing it, right? That, that's not how we're to serve the Lord. They were to do it from the heart, not as a hypocrite. All right, let's turn now to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, I would argue that if, you know, the people in America obeyed just this section of the will of God, our, our culture would be changed instantaneously. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8, continue to look at what's the will of God, says, Paul writes, finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus, for this is the will of God. So here it is. Here's the will of God. Your sanctification, right, become more like Christ, that you should abstain from sexual immorality that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one should take advantage of or defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. Okay. So it's God's will that all people should abstain from sexual immorality. 
And so think about that. Think about if people just said, in, you know, in America, you know what, guys, we're just going to do this. We're just going to obey the will of God here. Our country would be unrecognizable tomorrow. And so it's important for us to understand these is the will of God. All right, next, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. It says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Okay, so here's the will of God again, that we should always rejoice, that we should pray without ceasing, and that in everything we should give thanks. All right, we're getting nearer to the end of our Bible, so let's go to 1 Peter now. 1 Peter 2, looking at verses 15 and 16. 1 Peter 2, verses 15 and 16. Peter writes, here it is, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. So it is God's will that by doing the right thing, by obeying the will of God, what will happen? We'll silence unbelievers and that we would use our freedom in a way that honors God. So isn't that a wonderful thing? Isn't it a wonderful thing that if you think about the life of the Lord Jesus, that they couldn't find an accusation against him. They had to make up stuff. So for you and I to be people who whenever we do sin, we confess it. We ask for forgiveness. If we've wronged somebody, we talk about it. That, but we do the will of God in such a way that it shows the beauty of, of obeying God. And so what happens, we'll silence foolish men. Also in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 19. You know, this is probably not um, popular. I don't know if there's a, a Mardell painting of this verse. <laughs> 1 Peter 4, 19, therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to him and doing good as to a faithful creator. So the will of God for your life may involve suffering, right? For those who suffer according to the will of God. But, but what should we do in the midst of that? We should commit our souls to him and keep on doing good, even in the midst of suffering. That's the will of God for us. Now finally, one last place I wanna have you turn is, is 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, let's look at verses 15 through 17. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world, and the world is passing away. So just think about that for just a minute. The world's passing away. You know, all the art and all these things and all, you know, all these things that, that we just like, oh, this world, this, this world's passing away. God's gonna remake it, something better, a new heaven, a new earth. But here's what's not passing away, those who do the will of God. Look at verse 17. The world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. You're gonna outlast the world's. Right? You're going to have a resurrected body. You are going to be forever. And so this is a good news for you and I. That as we walk in the obedience of God, when we walk in the will of God, we're doing something that's forever. Someday, all Super Bowl trophies will be gone. Someday, all these buildings with people's names on them will be gone. But you and I and all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ will live forever will abide forever, and whatever we did for him will last forever. Please understand, when you do the will of God, that thing lasts forever. But if you and I live for the things of this world, lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 
getting ahead, getting a, you know, I just got to have that just little bit bigger house and that a little better car and I, I just got to do all my things for that. All that's passing away. But whatever we do that's according to God's will lasts forever, has an eternal reward. It's, it, God remembers it forever. God enjoys it forever. God's appreciative of that forever. So what, what we're being offered to us, instead of looking at this and, ah, oh, the will of God, and all right, well, Steve's just giving me more things to do and I have to go back to work tomorrow and all that kind of, that's not what this is. This is an opportunity. This is an investment that you and I, if we'll do the will of God, we can do things that are of eternal importance, not something that just lasts for this lifetime. So we'll stop here for today and prayerfully get back into Psalms last week. But I'd like to wrap up our time with a reminder that in obedience to the will of God, please understand, that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I'm not asking you, the scriptures are not asking me to do the will of God in our own power, but to do the will of God in the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling Holy Spirit will empower us to do that. But as we do that, this is what binds us together. As we are individual believers, we're individual members of one body, and as we're bound together and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we're going to move together. It's that common vision, that common purpose, that common empowering that transcends those natural family bonds. Now what's awesome is when our natural family are also believers, well it's a win-win. Because we have that, that, that fellowship here on earth and we realize, man, we're gonna have that fellowship forever. We're gonna have that fellowship eternally. So now, at the same time, though our unsaved family members may not yet believe, and though they may be walking in disobedience to the will of God right now, the invitation to become members of the family of God is always open to them. Okay, it's open to them. Remember, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. And the first step in doing the will of God is believing in the Lord Jesus. And so let's keep praying for our unbelieving family members. Let's keep reaching out to them, keep sharing the truth with them, and pray that the Lord would bring him into his family as he's brought you and I into it. Let's pray.